You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis, our monthly podcast that focuses on the Middle East, but also North Africa and the Gulf states. James Abbott here with you for the next 45, 50 minutes or so, and we're going to be talking about Ukraine. Uh, How can we not? Now, as normal, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by Dr. Harry Hagopian. Harry, as you may well know by now, is an international lawyer, consultant on the regions. Plus, importantly, in this case, of course, he has vast experience in conflict resolution, track two negotiations. And actually, some years ago, Harry has in fact been to Ukraine. So, Harry, how are you? I am fine, James. It's a sad moment, uh, but I have the impression that whenever we have an MEA, a Middle East Analysis podcast, we almost always talk about sad moments rather than joyous and happy moments. Perhaps that's a lesson for us. That's a lesson for the world. We're going to talk Ukraine, obviously, and in particular, the impact of the war on the Gulf states, the Middle East, North Africa, a raft of sanctions have now been put into play. And obviously they were never going to stop an invasion of Ukraine, I don't think. But the the, the feeling, I suppose, or the aim is that they, they have an impact and, and, and potentially draw us back to some level of, of, of peace and security. Whether that happens, who knows? But there is an impact on, on the Middle East and North Africa and Gulf states, isn't there? There certainly is. I mean, this is a a horrible war that is taking uh, place. And I suppose, James, to state the obvious, the very obvious, in fact, let me start off this podcast uh, today, since it's a special Ukraine one, by saying that we are indeed living in uncertain times. For the first time in seven decades, I reckon, Europe is now witnessing a war on its own territory and not elsewhere in our global village. Now, this confuses us. We had become quite accustomed to having times of peace. It confuses us, but it also frightens us, and it leads us sometimes to different conclusions. And we might even start following our most primal instincts, where the truth at times gets lost in the fog of war. So let me say it clearly right at the beginning so there is no misunderstanding about how we develop our conversation, you and I. Putin, Vladimir Putin, and to some extent his ally Lukashenko from Belorussia are guilty of waging a war. And I suppose that the very word of the Ukraine in its Slavic etymology, Ukraina, means borderland, it means frontier, it means periphery. And that, to me, is a key giveaway for what is happening today. But it is a war, as all the hashtags that we know on social media point out, and you're far better at this than I am, James. Although, according to Russia, It is not a war. It is what in Russian the president and his group of supporters, including the foreign minister Sergei Lavrov, 
call as a spets operatia, special operations. But listen, no meme or logo can change the basic fact that we are witnessing a war. In fact, if you go back to 2007, President Putin warned us all at the Munich Security Conference that year, and the MSC is an annual event, and he told us that he is unhappy with the way the West and, by natural analogy, NATO were going. But we did not hear him, or worse, we did not take heed. So the question today, one of the questions that keeps coming up and one that he keeps hammering on in every one of his monologues is the question, are Russia and Ukraine one country or two countries? Saint Vladimir the Great, the patron of Russia, was after all a prince of Ukraine when he converted. So can we say that it is one country or two countries? And can we also keep in mind that what is common sense for us in the United Kingdom, across the European Union, in North America, what is common sense to us is not necessarily perhaps common sense to him. Putin believes in the near abroad. He believes that he should have influence not only in the Russian Federation, but what also is adjacent to the Russian Federation. A reminder, perhaps a haunting reminder, of old times and the old uh, Cold War. But the fact remains that there is a war taking place. And the fact remains that Ukraine has been an independent and sovereign country since 1991. Now, one basic problem, which probably President Putin does not think is a problem, but I do, is that he is a sole operator. He is the only hub of power in Russia today. If you cast your mind back to the communist times, they used to have a politburo. They used to come together, knock their heads together, and decide. Now, no, it's only President Putin, imperious, with no checks on him. And that is what makes this war not only more dangerous, but also more unpredictable. Now, I know you get a bit edgy when I describe you as uh, or ask you to look into the future. And you always tell me you're not a prophet in that sense. But we will talk about potential outcomes. We will talk about pathways to peace and, and what might happen in the future, but we'll save that till later on. Now, I think you were right to, to call it as it is, and I was interested in your Slavic translation of Ukraine because I didn't know that. That's, that's absolutely fascinating and, and slightly outlines what's going on, I think. But it's funny, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got rather skillfully done, I would say, in social media. You've, you've got the heavyweight boxers, you've got Zelensky, former actor and so forth, knowing very well how to how to play the social media side and you've got Putin obviously in a terrible way in, invading and, and carrying on as you've said but it is that existential thing isn't it it's bringing Europe to the doorstep of Russia potentially bringing NATO to the doorstep of Russia it feels very existential and it feels very tense it's interesting to see though how everyone's rallied in solidarity isn't it you're absolutely right there James 
And you, you said something, whether uh, wittingly or unwittingly, which to me defines the very essence and the very character, I believe, of how President Putin thinks. You see, in this conversation, of course, come in the issue of sanctions, which is what indirectly you were also hinting at. Now, uh, the EU, until now at least, is highlighting the concept of trade regulations. If you look at what Putin thinks, he thinks of the hardware concept, not trade regulations and sanctions and embargoes, but hardware, military hardware. That is how he believes that uh, a country imposes its presence. It is the geopolitics of the 19th century which haven't moved on as the EU and as West Europe have done, not necessarily always because we wanted to do it, but because we couldn't maintain the hardware that he does. And therefore, we substituted the hardware with the software, with the trade regulations. And in that sense, it is now quite interesting that uh, you have the West trying desperately to ramp up the financial uh, sanctions uh, in order to impress upon Putin that he needs to relent, he needs to uh, change his mind. Uh, and unfortunately, we seem to forget that a few factors. We, we go and uh, confiscate a yacht in the Germany, in Hamburg, uh, Dilbar, another which is owned by a Russian oligarch, Alisher Usmanov. We do another one in uh, France. We try to uh, impose sanctions on sports games, on all sorts of things. Plus, of course, the big ones are the SWIFT financial exchange, the central bank, and all that. But what we sometimes don't realize is that those sanctions won't necessarily have all the impact they're being claimed to have, at least in the short and medium term. Remember that President Putin has been preparing for this war since 2014, when he invaded Crimea which incidentally, as you might know, James, Crimea was part of Russia until the 1950s anyway. And since 2014, he has stockpiled a massive gold and currency chest. You're talking about the yen, the euro, the dollar, the yuan of some $600 billion. He knew that the sanctions would happen the minute he embarks upon this war, and which also means that this is not something that he's doing at the last minute in an irrational decision, but that this is something he'd been preparing for. And therefore, those sanctions are now coming face to face with his preparations over the past eight uh, years or so. In a sense, the West is making him hurt. But how high would be the pain threshold for him to relent? And how much are we in the West 
willing to carry or bear the consequences of this pain because it's going to affect us as well, whether it is when you go and fill in your car with a few liters of petrol or when you pay your energy bills, which are already going up. So in a sense, the solidarity that we are showing with the Ukraine and the sanctions that we are imposing upon Russia are not necessarily uh, the be-all and end-all of all things in this war. They're just one component of it. Well, talking quickly about something like wheat, you know, Ukraine described as the breadbasket of Europe. How are the food supplies going to affect the Middle East, North Africa? They're going to affect them very, very much because, I mean, Ukraine and Russia are both the major exporters of uh, wheat for the Arab world. And it's very interesting that when it comes to bread, I've spoken with people, intelligent Uh, people who are not just people who repeat mantra like something they've read somewhere, who were telling me, you know what, Harry, do we really need, on top of everything else in the Middle East, North Africa, do we really need to now worry even about something as basic as bread? And guess what? It's not only happening in Ukraine, it's happening in Lebanon, it's happening in Egypt, it's happening in Yemen, where people are already queuing at bakeries in order to get bread. Now, it doesn't mean that eight days into the war, the impact of the wheat has already stopped all bread uh, bakeries from producing those basic staples. That is something that will gradually be felt in the MENA region. But what is also happening that it is playing on the psychology of the people there who are already traumatized by so much warfare by saying, let's go and invade the bakeries and get some bread before it, uh, there isn't any more there. So, of course, it's going to impact uh, the region. And that's one of the things that is going to happen. Another thing that's, of course, going to happen is that when we talk about sanctions, when we talk about the fact that we are trying to exclude some banks, at least in the Russian Federation from SWIFT, that that... Uh, is going to affect us as well. Why? Because the 40% of uh, hydrocarbons that uh, Europe imports from uh, Russia, how is it paid? It's paid, not somebody doesn't take a briefcase and go there, it's paid through the SWIFT exchange system. It's about 40% for Europe, it's about 60% or was for Germany, and it's only luckily for us in the UK, it's only roughly some 5%. So we are a little bit shielded from the more withering effects of the uh, energy sources coming uh, from Russia. All this is going to increase the uh, pain threshold. But if we in the West really believe that this is a war that should be resisted, because if we do not wake up at long last and try to put a stop to what we think is Putin's evil scheme, then this could uh, go on and become even more dangerous. So the pain is part of the salvation that people are talking about these days when they discuss military uh, attacks as well as diplomatic efforts. Now, when they do so, certainly in terms of, of, of military intervention, there's the very strong 
no boots on the ground. And there, there, there are also question marks as to some people are calling for a no-fly zone, but that has obviously a military ramification, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost like intervening at that point if you're policing airspace. So I presume you think that's a no-go, Harry. In my opinion, James, it is. And I go again to my little intro at the beginning where I definitely said that this is a war, comma, but. What does the but mean? The but means that in the middle of the war, we should sort of calm our passions a tiny bit. And I know it's a very difficult exercise. You and I are sitting here uncomfortably talking whilst the people there are running away. There are about 600,000 plus refugees who already left Kiev and eastern Ukraine to Poland, to Moldova, to Hungary, to Slovakia. I know it's not the same thing. And I'm not belittling the pain, the frustration and the fear of the Ukrainians who are caught up in this war with this big bear who can unleash so much destruction. But we have to temper down a little bit our passion, at least as analysts and politicians and people from the outside, and think a little bit rationally. Some people have turned to me in the conversations, the interviews, and the meetings I've had over the past few days, and they've said, listen, Harry, you're talking about the no-fly zone, you're talking about boots on the ground, and you're saying, no, this can't happen. Look what's happened in um, Syria. Look what's happened, because they always bring it, when they talk to me, they always bring it to my, between inverted commas, neighborhood as examples. How can you justify one but not the other? The answer is very simple. Yes, it is true that there have been no-fly zones elsewhere in the region. Iraq was one of them. Libya was another one of them. But the fact remains that when it comes to boots on the ground, whether it's NATO or whether it is other countries, whether it is our own foreign secretary, Liz Truss, saying, oh, yes, she'd understand people going and fighting in Ukraine. And I'm thinking these people are going to go there. They've never held a gun in their hands for uh, throughout their lives. Whatever the reason, we are not facing just any adversary. We are facing a country with nuclear powers. You put boots on the ground and it means automatically that it's going to be a nuclear confrontation between Russian Federation or Russia and Belorussia on the one hand and the 30 NATO countries uh, on the other. Are we ready for this? Particularly since, if you remember, uh, Putin threw in this statement saying that we have got our tactical nuclear arms ready. Now, why did he say that? It was a reminder to the West that we are nuclear, but it was more than that. We look at nuclear arms as the weapon of last resort. Russia, during Putin's time, has changed this. And they basically look at nuclear tactical arms as a weapon of first resort. That's part and parcel of what I called the geopolitical hardware understanding of uh, Russia and of Putin, that this is part and parcel of what a war is all about. We're not going to keep them in their silos until the last uh, minute when we are basically 
on the brink of survival or extinction. So this is why I'm very worried. The same applies to the no-fly zone. You put a no-fly zone there, as has happened in other parts of the world, as happened in the famous Bosnia-Herzegovina situation many years ago during the Clinton-US administration. All this I understand, but you bring up those that no-fly zone, then automatically you're inviting aerial combats between Russian fighters and NATO fighters. That can not end well. Now, somebody was telling me in one interview, they said to me, Harry, you shouldn't be against the no-fly zone. Why are you against it? And I said, listen, I would have been very happy to support the no-fly zone if Ukraine had asked for it before the war started and the West NATO, in other words, had agreed to it. Because if that had happened before the war started, before Putin launched his offensive from three or four different parts of uh, Ukraine, the north, the northeast, the southeast, and the southwest, if it had happened before the war started, then it might have served as a deterrent, as pause for thought. But now that we're in the heat of the war, to suddenly say we're going to go and police the airs above Ukraine, that to me is very, very worrying. And the same applies to boots on the ground. Yes, Putin himself should know this. He's in Syria. He's been in Syria wreaking havoc with Syria in so many different ways. But remember, he was invited there by Bashar Assad, the president of Syria. So he went there legitimately upon the invitation of a sovereign state. To the best of my knowledge, Ukraine and President Zelensky have not invited Russia in. So the question of the boots becomes also another uh, iffy uh, matter as far as I'm concerned. So I understand the issue of solidarity. I understand the nervousness we have in the West when we see what is happening to a country which is a huge country, actually. It's not a small country. And we're thinking, what's going to be next? What next? I can understand the nervousness of the Baltic states. I can understand the nervousness of Poland. All these people, there are memories of the Cold War, of the former Soviet socialist system, which are beginning to prey upon their minds. But that is what I mean, James, when I say rationality, clear-minded, painful analysis is at times better than just going and running in without really assessing what we are getting ourselves into. No, I think that's a good point, Harry. And obviously, de-escalation, which again, we'll probably come on to towards the end when we talk potential outcomes. It's a very, very delicate process because something has to be offered for both sides and for both sides to find it satisfactory. So that's going to be a difficult one. But I did want to come on to media coverage because I think uh, I sort of alluded to it earlier with regard to social media. It's becoming quite a a major component, isn't it? I, I can't recall seeing quite so much coverage on on the mainstream media, to be quite honest. Now, you did mention the seven decades, so I do understand that it's a huge story. And and obviously, it's very, very painful seeing these images, I have to say. But nonetheless, there have been one or two voices that I've found quite interesting and also quite hard to disagree with that have said, well, 
there's obviously been nearly 400,000 casualties in Yemen, for instance, and yet there's not so much media coverage about that. So how would you assess the current media coverage of the war in Ukraine? I would say a lot about what I call uh, double standards, and they're not only double standards in my head or in my mind. They're double standards that I've uh, heard many, many people, Brits and non-Brits, tell me in the past eight days. What worries me about the media, and we're talking about the secular media particularly rather than religious media, is that I've watched it. I've watched uh, programs covering the uh, Ukraine-Russia war uh, in English. Many stations, many different sources. I've watched it in French. I've watched it in German. I've watched it in Arabic. And I've seen how people are reacting to a journalist. And it sort of makes me a little bit uneasy when I see some journalists who are forgetting that they are there to transmit facts, to tell us the story of what is happening, and they suddenly become themselves involved in the conflict and start fighting with the guests they have on the program who do not necessarily agree uh, with them. Now, we're all human beings. A journalist covering it in... uh, uh, any part of the Ukraine from the south to the north, whether it's Kiev, whether it's Odessa, whether it's Lviv, whether it's Mariupol, uh, whether it's Donetsk and Luhansk, wherever it is, they're human beings like us. So I can't say that they're robots who should go there and insulate themselves from any feelings when they're seeing with their own eyes. First hand, unlike us who see it second and third hand, the misery of the people, the fear of the people, the injuries, the deaths, the destruction, and it impacts them. Of course it does. But that is where professionalism kicks in. That is when a journalist has to be very careful not to suddenly seem as if they, he or she, are over-egging the conflict. Because by over-egging the conflict, by sort of saying, but then you're not looking at the... I, I saw a, a, a clip the other day of somebody telling the, the Russian uh, foreign minister, who himself is known to be a bully, uh, telling the uh, Russian foreign minister, I know you have a daughter. How would you feel if your daughter died uh, in, in the war? Aren't you feeling ashamed about this? I I have a different approach. Maybe it's because of my training as a conflict resolution person. Maybe it's my own experiences. I've been in wars in the Middle East. I've been I've lived through wars in Iraq and in Israel Palestine. I know a little bit what it means to have planes over your head and soldiers coming in and bombs. You don't know where those bombs are going uh, to land. Fortunately, when I was Uh, experiencing those wars, they weren't as deadly as they are today. So in a sense, I understand all that, but we have to try and refrain from over-egging the conflict, from uh, uh, challenging is fine, but disputing a guest. Why? Because if you over-egg the conflict, you raise expectations. And if you raise expectations and then things happen differently, the reaction to that would be even more dangerous than not treading on that ground in the first uh, case.
Okay, Harry, so now we'll move into those relationships between countries. Obviously, we've got the big one, Russia and China, but um, also the, the West, Europe, Germany, which has changed its uh, strategy somewhat with more defence spending and so forth, which was, I think, a surprise to some. Talk to us about those, those relationships between Russia and the West, first of all. It's interesting what's happening, uh, James, because the first thing I would say, and it's a basically overarching uh, statement, is that no matter what happened during those days of the war, the last week or preceding that, because the Russians have been massing their troops there for the past three, four months. One thing that I would always say is that we in the West had been extremely lax about this whole issue. In 1991, there was a collapse of the USSR. The West had a moral capital then that it could have invested in, but we wasted it away. What do I mean by that? I mean by that that when the former USSR collapsed, instead of focusing on Russia, our focus turned toward the former countries of what was known then as the Warsaw Pact. So we, in my opinion, were untrue to our own standards. If we had done things differently, if we had managed to lure in Russia into the West in a better way, if we had planned more coherently and more carefully our policies and the way we would de deal with the debris of the fallout of the collapse of the USSR, may if we had looked at Yeltsin for what he really was rather than what we hoped he was, if we had not been too sanctimonious sometimes when we talked about our values, if we had believed more fully in an inclusive democracy, the way we've been talking about it uh, for the last two or three months when it comes to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union then, Russian Federation now, maybe it would have been uh, easier for us today to avoid what is happening on the ground with the terrible suffering that is being visited upon uh, Ukrainians across their whole uh, country. And within that context, within that vehicle, there are a few countries that have played a big role. One of them, of course, is France. Now, uh, President Emmanuel Macron has been criticized for constantly picking up the phone and talking to President Putin. Now, I think part of that is because he's trying to show that he's a serious president, a serious political leader, and also, incidentally, one that is going into a presidential election year. In 37 days uh, from today, uh, France is going to vote in the first round of presidential elections. And of course, he wants to be re-elected. He just threw his hat in the ring again yesterday. So I know all that. But France is also trying to keep the diplomatic uh, roots with Putin because it is Putin at the end of the day, at least until now, keeping those open. Now, the pressures 
have risen. So we have, on the other hand, uh, America basically saying very publicly before the war started, oh, it's going to be a war, oh, it's going to be a war, ramping up the pressure. We in the United Kingdom, who are now outside the EU because of our uh, Brexit referendum, we are trying to show that we are very much a global Britain, and our Prime Minister is trying to regain some of his stature, which was pretty much completely depleted because of Partygate and other issues. So we are also trying to be tough-sounding, particularly our foreign secretary and our prime minister. Then, of course, as you mentioned yourself, there is France. Sorry, there is Germany. Uh, apology. There is Germany. And Germany, you said there is a bit of a transformation. I would say there is a huge transformation from a former chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, who basically is a board member on the Russian gas exporting company Gazprom, to Angela Merkel, who probably, in my estimation, was the only uh, German federal chancellor who had a speaking relationship, common language with Putin. I mean, she thought that she had a special relationship with Putin, and I think she did, because Angela Merkel, who just left power, who she retired after so many years, she thought that there was a special German-Russian deal. And what was that German-Russian deal? Russia provided Germany with energy. I told you it's 60% of its energy needs. In return, Germany provided Russia with technology. So it was technology versus energy. That was Angela Merkel. Now we have a new chancellor, Olaf Scholz. And at the beginning, Olaf Scholz was quite, if you know, people were criticizing him for not saying much because you have to understand the psyche of the Germans coming out of two world wars, coming out from the whole humiliation that they faced with their defeat and the war. The fact that the Allies decided that no more militarization of Germany, it has to uh, behave. And what happened as a result? Uh, Germany became the economic powerhouse par excellence across the whole of Europe. But it was not a military powerhouse. Gradually, this was changing. And in the last few days, given the pressures and the realities of both a war and the American pressures, and perhaps even a bit of European pressure on the German chancellor, now there is a radical transformation uh, in Germany. And what that means is that Germany now doesn't only consider itself an economic powerhouse, but it is also on its way to become a global military powerhouse too. Now, in all of this, there is also Russia and China. If I take you back, James, to the Beijing uh, 2022 Winter Olympics, you do recall that Vladimir Putin, that President Putin went himself for the opening of the Winter Olympics and had a one-on-one -on -one, uh, chinwag, a, a chat with President Xi of China. Now, I don't know what they said. I was neither in their heads nor on the wall. But I am pretty sure that they discussed 
this war that Putin is waging uh, on the Ukraine. And they talked about how China should react. And there is a lot of gossip that China asked uh, Russia not to start the war until the end of the uh, Winter Olympics. But all this is very important. And why do I throw in China? Because China's reaction to the war has been ambivalent. It has frustrated the West because it has not come out against the war. It has frustrated and perhaps even angered Putin because it has not supported Russia fully. But why? Because I think President Xi realizes that if he were to endorse Putin's war, Putin's adventure, fully, then his cards, when it comes to Taiwan, would be even weaker than they are at the moment. So you have that, you have Britain, you have Germany, you have France. And everybody now is talking, I was listening to the Radio 4 Today program on the BBC today, and they were talking about, is it true that Gorbachev was promised by the West that NATO would not expand toward the East, and then NATO reneged on that deal. Is that true? Somebody was saying, yes, it is true. Another person was saying, no, it's not true. The promise was only not to go into East Germany, not into East Europe. And in a sense, the problem was that this was never written down on a piece of paper. But in some uh, Russian circles, a handshake would be enough. Therefore, there are all these things that are impacting uh, the, the reactions of the West. They're also impacting the reactions of Turkey. Turkey is very important because Turkey has gradually hardened its stance and now it's backing uh, the American policies. It's called the situation in the Ukraine a war. And it is, in my opinion, a way for Turkey to come back into the U.S. administration's good books because it, they had fallen out in a most terrible way. And Turkey is very important. Why? Not because... Uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan can raise the decibels, but because under the provisions of the 1936 Montreux Convention, which incidentally is one of the founding treaties of the modern Turkish Republic, NATO member Turkey has control over the Bosphorus and Dardanelles Straits. What does that mean? It controls the passage between the Mediterranean and the Black Seas. This means that Ankara could regulate the transit of naval warships by closing the straits to foreign warships during wartime, including Russian warships. So put all this together and you can understand why I sometimes feel uneasy when somebody stands up and says, oh, we must do this and that, when there are so many factors that are weighing in on a very, very dangerous situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Harry, just to touch upon those relationships in the Middle East, North Africa, I mean, obviously, you've got Syria, pro-Russian, one would say, Lebanon and Kuwait, 
that, that have suffered uh, invasions themselves. They are more supporting Ukraine. And do correct me if, if I'm wrong in any of this, of course. But then you've got a lot of the, the bigger powers, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Egypt and so forth, that are being somewhat more cautious. I think I read in a few accounts they were being described as fence sitters. So tell me a little bit about the, the dynamic with those countries in the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf states. Those countries, over the years, James, uh, since before Biden came to power, during Trump's time, they were reading the writing on the wall, and the writing on the wall told them that the United States was no longer interested in the MENA and Gulf region. It wanted to exit this region, and it wanted to divert its attention to Pacific and to Asia, to China, to deal with China, which the USA considers its main rival, not Russia. So they started, therefore, establishing relations with Russia. Saudi Arabia, always a staunch ally of the United States, entered into a military agreement with Russia. Syria, we know what happened. Iraq is the same. So in a sense, all this was happening. The Gulf states in the United States Security Council, the United Arab Emirates refused to vote for a resolution condemning Russia. All this happened. Israel, for instance, at the beginning was caught in a situation where it didn't know how to behave and it didn't want to condemn Russia because Russia allowed, between inverted commas, Israel from uh, attacking uh, Hezbollah and militant uh, elements within Syria itself until the pressure became too strong and until the Russian bombing of a TV tower in Kyiv that also hit the adjacent Holocaust memorial at the Babin Yar, which is a site of the 1941 uh, Nazi massacre of more than 30,000 Jews at the time, that Yair Lapid, the foreign minister, came out and said, enough is enough, we condemn the Russian uh, invasion or war on Ukraine, but Israel has also been like this. Netanyahu was often uh, accused by some people, him and his Bibists, in other words, those who support him, for being too generous and too friendly with Putin. So all this has come together and has created this tension within the MENA and Gulf region about how to deal with the invasion, how to deal with this war without necessarily severing links with either one or the other. And of course, it's not easy because sitting uh, on the fence doesn't mean you stay friends with both parties. It means you fall out with both parties. And you know, James, then there is also Iran. Iran is a major power in the region, in the Gulf region. And what I would suggest is that if Russia were to cut off all exports of energy and hydrocarbons to Europe, then just imagine if the JCPOA, non-nuclear talks in Vienna, were to succeed, who knows, Iran would be able to contribute toward replacing those exports. It would do Iran a world of good, and it would also help us in the West with our energy reserves as well. But let me add one other point there, uh, James, if I may, since we're talking about the MENA and Gulf region, because you raised it earlier in this podcast. I've spoken to so many people who are scratching their heads and saying, wow, Look at the amount of noise that the West is emitting 
because of the Russian invasion and the Russian war against Ukraine. Did they do anything with Syria, given the heinous atrocities committed by the Syrian regime and its allies? Did they do anything with Palestine and the occupation that has gone on for decades with all the demolitions, the dispossessions, the expropriations, the settlements, etc., etc.? Did they do anything with Yemen, where so many, you raised that issue, so many hundreds of thousands of people are either dead or homeless or internally displaced? What about Iraq? So there is even the Armenians, and you know I'm Armenian, even the Armenians are now saying, wow, isn't this a bit of a double standards when there was a war in Azerbaijan with Turkish Bayraktar drones was attacking Armenians in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, nobody in the West said anything. Nobody talked. And now, suddenly, it comes up. So the question is, is it a question, oh, the Ukrainians are from us, and these people aren't, and therefore, you know what? They are not our problem, but the Ukrainians are. These are some of the issues I'm hearing time and time again. One quite well-known journalist said, oh, after all, the people in the southern Caucasus or the MENA and Gulf regions, they're not blue-eyed, blonde people. That sense of that feeling about um, uh, double standards that is eating away in some people's psyches, that sense of, dare I call it, racism is also pretty much there, but it is there quite a bit hidden because it's not really the thing to say in the middle of a war. Well, I think you put that more eloquently than than I did earlier on, so thank, thank you for that. Now, I think actually, Harry, we're approaching that time where we try and draw all this together because you've given us such a multifaceted response to the war in Ukraine. Now we've got the International Criminal Court potentially investigating war crimes. We've got potential talk of humanitarian safe corridors. There might be some agreement there because you mentioned earlier the hundreds of thousands of refugees amassing at the various borders. And those pathways to peace I mentioned earlier. So uh, it's a big task, Harry, but try and draw this, this back round for us and, and conclude really with regard to the future. Before we come very briefly to outcomes, and perhaps you'd give me the chance of an afterthought, let me tell you one theory. That is not a popular theory. That's going to rub some people the wrong way, particularly in the West. But there is a theory that is heard discreetly in some corridors of think tanks, that the U.S. administration, the USA, Biden, actually encouraged this war. Why? It says, this thought says, that the Americans wanted a war in the Ukraine because that war would then pit Germany against Russia in Europe. And we have just spoken quite a few minutes about how Germany under Chancellor Olaf Scholz has radically changed its attitude with its military spending, with its arsenal, etc., etc., And the Americans thought that if Germany is pitted against Russia and Europe, and that keeps Russia and Europe busy with each other, then the USA can finally turn its attention toward China. 
Now, this is being done by some reputable people, some policy analysts across think tanks uh, in the region. And I don't know whether it's true or not. I, I'm not the author of this theory. So whether it's true or not, I don't know. But in a world swirling with uh, facts and factoids, uh, let me throw that in for some people uh, to think about. Now, I want to lunge straight into outcomes, James. I would say that there are four possible outcomes. The little that I know of Ukraine, in your intro you talked a little bit. It's not only my visit to the country, it's, it's also the fact that I've got friends with whom I'm in WhatsApp connection, just making sure that they're okay in Kiev and in Lviv, both east and west of the country. So there's a personal investment in that country as well in terms of friendships. Uh, but the outcomes, I sort of divide them into four. We can have a short war where Russia with its huge military arsenal would be victorious. But then I would say if Russia were to take over the country, would occupy the country, would it be able to hold it together? Would it be able just to set up a puppet regime? Would that not be a risky occupation? And more to the point, would that big gamble not also be hugely expensive? And Russia is Russia's economy is equivalent to that of Spain, even though the country is so many times uh, bigger. Can it afford that? I doubt it. The long war, well... Ukraine could turn into an Afghanistan-like quagmire in the long term. And God forfend that doesn't happen because that would really be uh, an, a nightmare. The third option is the diplomatic option, that the negotiations in Belarusia somehow succeed. And in uh, conflict resolution, when I was doing this academically in my law studies and legal disciplines, I was taught by one of the most eminent uh, professors of alternative dispute resolution in this country that it is only possible to strike a deal in conflict resolution when the conflict peaks. So when the conflict peaks, is it possible that both parties would come together and find a way of... Uh, of uh, tailoring a solution that would spare more lives and more destruction from both sides, but we're talking about an occupying country and an occupier. And the fourth point I would make, the fourth theory I have, which is also very forlorn, but I'm just throwing it in there since we're delving into virtual reality, is a palace coup that the generals in Russia and the Kremlin realize that uh, Putin is taking Russia down a very, very uh, dangerous route and they decide to get rid of him. Well, Putin has been there long enough to have cleaned away all the people who would oppose him. So would it happen or not? I don't know. These are the theories that at the moment I would uh, suggest. And of course, within one of those theories, what I call the Lebanon theory, is that you would have east of uh, Ukraine, which is the Russian-speaking part of the Ukraine, held by Russian Federation, 
and the West, which is more European, more Catholic, less Orthodox, more uh, pro, more uh, congruent with Poland and uh, so-called Western principles, would stay uh, in uh, Ukrainian hands, and President uh, Zelensky would go and set his uh, office in Lviv rather than having it in Kiev. Would that happen? I've no idea. I've just thrown out those. Forgive me, I've done it very quickly because I don't I don't think we have time to elaborate, but these are just food for thought to see if I'm totally off piste or whether there is some kernel of truth in in any of those. Probably more than a kernel of truth in any number of those. I think it's dare I say it, and I hope it doesn't sound like a cop-out, but it's, it's time will tell in many ways, which often seems the case in our discussions of conflict and war, especially in the Middle East, North Africa over the last 12 years, Harry. So yeah, time will tell. Thank you very much for that. I think you covered a huge amount of ground very well as well, and I found it very interesting. My goodness. I mean, it, I think you're right as well to say there's a need to be balanced. Certainly one doesn't want to be propagandist, but equally one wants to stand in solidarity with the suffering people of Ukraine, and also to spare a thought for those in Russia whose, whose sons are fighting in, in Ukraine as well, reluctantly perhaps, or with fear. There are many victims, if you like, to this particular war, as indeed there always are. You're absolutely right, uh, James, and uh, those soldiers who are fighting in uh, Ukraine, who are going into uh, Kherson, into Mariupol, into Kharkiv, into other areas, uh, uh, marching toward uh, the center of Kiev. These people aren't all uh, criminals. They are people who are being forced to follow orders coming from uh, up top there. And therefore, a word for them, a thought for them, as well as, of course, all these wonderful uh, Ukrainian men, women, and children who are really sort of at their wits' ends at the moment as to what is happening. That is the true characteristic or identity of somebody who wants to look at this uh, conflict smack in the heart of Europe. And all this, all this brings me to conclude with an afterthought that I included in one of my YouTubes. As you know, I have my series of YouTubes. And in one of them, I quoted an Athenian historian Thucydides, during the siege of Melos, going back to the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta, this Athenian historian said, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. How sad, how painful, but also to a large extent, how true in our modern world. Goodness me, very poignant. Food for thought, absolutely. Well, Harry, thank you so much for your many interventions and your analysis there, um, accepting that obviously things will change, time will move fast, and, and it's a very fluid situation. But we, we do, of course, hold those that are suffering in, in this conflict in our thoughts and prayers. So perhaps, Harry, you can um, touch upon this again when we reconvene for another Middle East analysis next month. I hope so, and thank you very much for your patience and your uh, efforts, James. Thank you, Harry.